0: All right, open your Bibles to 1 John 4. Um, 1 John 4, we'll be looking at verses 7 to 21 today. And to be fair, a couple of preliminary statements here. Number one, Pastor Sam sets up these sermon texts, and that's why we're covering so many verses today. It's actually two messages. And while Pastor Sam can preach a long time and be forgiven... I've struggled with knowing what to do. I even told my wife. There's so much here. And she encouraged me, as she always does, but this time particularly, focus on what needs to be shared. I know you want to cover everything, and I do. But she said, cover what needs to be shared, and I know God will bless. And and I know that that's true. Another thing is, I'm here again, and normally that would not be the case. I actually tried looking for people, men who are normally on our preaching rotation, to be here and instead. Nobody wanted to do it, so here I am. <laughs> and it's actually a blessing. I, I love the challenge. There's, there's nothing like the challenge of digging into God's Word and being personally confronted by the text of Scripture before I ever come here. And that's truly what's happened again this week in the great theme that I've looked at here in 1 John 4, 7 to 21, in the love of God. The title of our message this morning is Assurance of God's Love, and that's this text of scripture. I won't read it all now. Jeff read that for us this morning, but what I'll do as I start is is tell you about a guy that I knew about named Henry Light, and Henry had a problem. Henry had a deadbeat dad. When Henry was just a young boy, his dad preferred to not be around at home. His dad was still a part of the home, but typically, Henry's dad would prefer to be out hunting and fishing, and when he did come home, didn't really pay attention to his son very much. Well, one of the times when his dad came home, he told his wife, we're going to send the boy to a boarding school, and that's what he did. He took Henry to the boarding school, handed him over to the care of the headmaster there, and left. And when he did come to pay the bills, or whenever he, to sign his name, or whenever he sent a letter to his son, he would always sign it at the end, your uncle. Blow after blow to Henry Light. And you've heard stories like this. Maybe you've been in a situation like this with a deadbeat dad who just didn't engage with you, didn't love you. Or if he did love you, it's just this weird kind of love. you was not really sure if it was love. He's just not there for you. Situations like that around this church and in our culture produce uh, kids who grow up into adulthood unassured, not certain, and just feeling kind of cast off and forever wondering, you know, what's my place? What's my value? Henry Light did not grow up in such a way. His life was transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he became a pastor, and around the early 1800s, when he was alive, he wrote this hymn Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. And this, these are some of the words. These are the words of a boy whose dad had abandoned him, who grew up basically with a dad who wrote him off to get him out of his life, and who now is pastoring a congregation of people in England. And as he's writing this hymn, he writes these words speaking to himself and to those that he knows and loves. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. And then he tells them these three things to think on. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? You may have lost you on that last word. It means to live distrustingly and suspicious of never being loved. Child of heaven, can you live distrustingly or suspicious of the love of a heavenly father, knowing these things that he has said and revealed? And the answer to that is no. Yet we do. We live in fear at times that God does not love us, or we think at best, because of our track record, that we know all too well he's putting up with us, and that someday the boom might get lowered on us when we're least expecting it because of that last straw that we we broke. Now, I just threw out a bunch of allegories there, metaphors. If I lost you, the point is we do live in fear, but we ought not. Because this text of scripture teaches us a theme, and the theme is this, God loves his children and wants them to walk in the life that his love gives. He loves his children. Now there's there things that we need to unpack, and as we go this morning, I hope that you can like Henry Light, who lived so long ago, whose last words recorded when he died were joy, peace, and then he died going into the presence of God, that your life could be so transformed that no matter what examples you've had of love, that it could be transformed because your definitions start with God and this God who is love. Let's look at the text of scripture. And as you do, I'll put up these two points that you can have and follow along with this morning. These are essentially the two messages that should be preached separately, but it all goes together and I'm going to do my best to do this this morning. To present the evidence of God's love and to let God's word speak to you and allow God's evidence of his love to be revealed to you and to challenge you to believe it. And then the second point, the effect of God's love, talking about what it's like if God's love has so been evident and revealed to us, what are we responsible to do? And my hope is to spend more time on the first point, less time on the second point, but ultimately to tell you in the second point what to do if God so loves you, and how to respond. Because it's not faithful preaching if we just tell you what's true, but we don't guide you into what the Holy Spirit wants you to do with it. And so that's my hope this morning, going back to that theme uh, that God loves his children, and wants them to walk in the life that his love gives. Let's start in the first point, evidence of God's love. How does he evidence his love? Well, it's first revealed in his very nature. The love of God is revealed in God's nature. Now John begins this passage by drawing our attention to what he has before, all right? He says, beloved. And again, that's the, verse, the word that he started verse one with, beloved, and it's because, he uses that word because the, the love of God has so invaded John's life and changed him that he can't help but to just push out that love to others. He knows that God loves them so. They are the beloved of God. And he uses that term, it just comes out of him naturally, just as much as it does when I call my wife that. Um, She is my beloved. I sent her a text this morning, even thanking her and and loving her well because of how much she had loved me. And I'll get to that in a minute. But beloved just comes out when you've got an object of your love and you just want to let them know that you love them. John has been so loved by God. And he draws our attention back to the love that God has for his people. But yet, he starts with this command we've heard so often, let us love one another. I've heard that through these various messages that Pastor Sam has preached, and I can tell you that I've gone home with my wife and just kind of bemoaned about this high standard of the love of God, meaning that I need to love other people. Do you realize how hard it is to love other people how difficult it is to love them well, how impossible it is to love others the way that God has loved us. I was encouraged to come across this statement just offhand from David Jackman, a British Bible teacher that wrote a commentary that I have. He said, as I have studied this letter, First John, in depth over the past few years, I have sometimes found myself beginning to wonder whether I have made any progress at all in this life. Have you felt that at all in this 1 John series? I have. And he says, the letter is written to give us assurance. And it is. That is the main theme here, assurance of God and of your position in Christ. But he says, it's written to give us assurance, but not infrequently. It brings us to see how little like our Lord we really are and how much further we have to go. And the point of this book is not to beat you into the ground as a child of God. But it does reveal these areas where we still find ourselves falling short. What does any faithful Bible teacher do who has encountered God and knows God do at that point? He draws our attention back to God and his life-giving grace and love. That's what John does. And he goes on to say, verse 7, whoever loves has been, oh, pardon me, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God amazing statement there. Love is not just an emotion that's up for grabs. If you can somehow catch it, you're lucky. No, love is from God. Its origin is from God. So we'll come to find out something more unique about that as we read. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, this is a remarkable statement. Those who love truly are those who have been born again into the family of God. Because they know and have experienced what real love is. Now, my non Christian friends here and our, our unsaved friends um, all over Knoxville and around the country and the world, they love too. When people love somebody else and give up something so that they can have something, right, that is a picture of the grace of God that's even there in someone who has not turned to God at this point. And it's The truth that we're all created in the image of God, loving another person, even for a person who is unsaved, they can love and praise God that that's true. It's the grace of God, but only the born again children, and that's the only kind of children of God there are, love, truly God's love. This is what we find out. Anyone who does not love, verse eight, does not know God. Because God is love. Here's the remarkable truth of the nature of God, his essence. God is love. It's not sufficient to say that it's revealed in God's character. In other words, I would think the scripture would say God is loving. And you can go to God and you can depend on him loving you. Well. I have a truth that might shock you at first, but I hope ultimately will be the ground of your assurance, God doesn't need you to be loving. He doesn't need anything or anyone to be loving. He is, in his essence, who he is, love. And what we read in the words of our Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer this is a verse that didn't make it up on the screens, is this, 1 John, John 17, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is praying to God that he wants to be in his disciples, and so he says, I in them, all of his disciples and those yet to come, many of you here this morning, and you, God, in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. Wonderful statement here. Loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prays that the world would see that God the Father loves his children here on earth even as much as he has loved Jesus. Amazing reality. But here's where it gets mystical In the sense that we can't understand it. We weren't there. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, John 17, 24, they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here is this this grand reality of the ground of assurance that it's impossible for us to grasp with our minds, yet many places in the word of God were drawn into this reality so that we can wonder at it and worship this God. Oftentimes, we get the sense that God was bored, and so he created everything. I can remember reading a poem when I was in high school by a really good Poet named James Weldon Johnson lived in the early 20th century, wrote a collection of poems called God's Trombones, and he wrote one poem in particular in that collection called Creation. With very vivid imagery, he describes God stepping down and with intimate care creating different parts of his creation. Uh, but the beginning starts this way And God stepped out on space, and he looked around and said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. That's wrong. The error there is saying that God is lonely. He was never lonely. From eternity past, God always, no beginning, was love. To the current time, God is love. And God always will be love. Doesn't need any of us. But the wonder of it is, as the love was shared, both giving and receiving from Father to Son and Holy Spirit for eternity past, it was that love that overflowed into the creation of everything that you see around you now. And it wasn't a separate thing that God said, well, now I'll create love and now I've got people that I can actually love. No, the love of God was poured out and shared in that initial creation with the man and the woman who were walking with God unashamed and in perfect fellowship, knowing Him and abiding in Him and having fellowship in Him. But you know as well as I do that that was broken. And since that time, this notion of God as love has been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misaligned. (laughs) Currently, there's a, an expression that I've seen pop up on many social media sites, and it's a different definition using two of the same words, and it begins with love. And it says this, love is love. I want to share with you, that's not a helpful definition. <laughs> I, I think I hear in it what people are trying to say. I think the message that I'm getting from that is, whatever shape love takes in your life, and these are my words, how I'm trying to understand it, whatever shape love takes in your life, however you display it, and whoever you want to share it with, the point is to just love and be loved and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You kind of get that message, you kind of see that, and, and it's popping up in places where it's very popular to say, well, if that's how you feel, man, who am I to tell you otherwise? Or if that's who you are, that's none of my concern, you just be affirmed and you don't have any, nobody has any right to tell you otherwise. Love is love. But let me say this, if you say love is love, and you don't have a definition other than that, it's, it's just this nebulous thing that hopefully your feelings can align with and you can grab onto it and if you get it, great. Love makes the world go around. I hope you can find it out there, somewhere how can we find love? God is love. Our understanding of love starts with God. Otherwise, if you begin with love, then your proper definition would be love is God, with a little g. And you don't want that, my friends. We need this truth of the nature of God as he's revealed it to us that he is love. Let me go on to the second revelation of God's love, and it's this. If this is a bit nebulous and hard for us to understand, the second point is rooted in time and space, history. It's the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. John the Apostle can't escape from this. He continues to bring it up again and again, and praise God that he does in this letter. I find that. As much trouble as I get in, in my spirit and in my behavior, turning from God at times, the answer is always to come back to Jesus. And God the Father is saying to us, in effect, that if you're, if you're unconvinced of my love, if you, if you find it difficult to grasp that my very essence is love, then look at my son. And look at the statements that God piles up. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how the love of God showed up, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Amazing promise of what God wants to assure to our troubled hearts. He sent his son into the world so that we might live. This is like what Jesus says when he prays in John 17, Verse three, he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is what God wills for us, and this is what he wants us to remember and to know, that eternal life is not just saying a prayer and and having our sins forgiven and someday getting to heaven. Eternal life starts now with sins forgiven, with life restored, and in fellowship with the God who is love. Experiencing some of that even now until the day when we experience it fully in heaven. Verse 10 is another statement that God God piles up about his love in his son, and he says, it is not that we loved God, but that God loved us And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is one of the first verses that our kids ever learned when they went through Awana here at West Park. God loved us and sent his son. And Awana is about to begin again. Here's Here's a plug, a shameless plug for Awana. If your children are not involved in it, it's a wonderful opportunity for them to get the word of God memorized so that they're repeating it, and it's a chance for you as a family to work through it together. This is one of the first things I remember my kids learning when they started that program. God loved us and sent his son. For those who could say the word, they completed it to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is very interesting, this word propitiation. And we learned about it several weeks ago when Jake Bishop was here preaching the first part of 1 John chapter 2. I'll get to the definition in a moment. But you need to know this propitiation has to do with the wrath of God. God is love, but God is also light. God is light, according to 1 John chapter 1. Um, again, complete it with me. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Right? God is holy. He cannot stand in the presence of sin. Sin can never be around him, ever. And when he encounters the humans that are here on earth, here's what he finds. Sin. Sin in your heart, sin in my heart. Some that we evidence outwardly and some that we hold in our hearts, and God sees it all, and he has a complete record of it. And here's where propitiation comes to help us First of all, it it confronts us in our misunderstandings of God's love. We do have misunderstandings of it. There was a a woman who's a very famous sinner, and she was known for flagrantly living out a life of sin. And somebody asked her someday, well, how can you be certain at all that God will forgive you? And she looked at him very flippantly and just said, well, that's his job. Some people think that God loves them because that's his job. That's just a God job description, to love people. We're the ones helpless down here. God's the one with all the power up there. It's his job to love us. No, it's not. Remember, God is love independent of any people. So what happens when you confront this God who is love in all of his perfections? God is love in his holiness, God's love influences that holiness. As well, God is holy, and his holiness influences that love. There is no tension. It's all perfection. And in everything he does, sin can't even enter in. The word propitiation is required when you put people in the presence of a holy, loving God. Propitiation is defined this way. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. This comes from the ESV study Bible and it's as good as any other definition. Some of you may have in your Bibles an atoning sacrifice. I have always thought that that helps, but it's insufficient to what this is saying. It gets at the idea, but the word here is propitiation, hard to say, but vital to get. God was wrathful, rightly so, for the sins of every single one of us. And if you have not come and repented of those sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone to be your Lord and Savior, God's wrath is still coming for you. But if you have turned to Jesus, and if any of you are not in Christ yet, you can turn to Jesus. Why? Because he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the divine wrath bearer for the sins of all of us who are lost, and that's every single one of us. He is the propitiation. And he has made right our record of wrongs by receiving the full penalty of God's wrath and giving to us the full pardon and benefits of perfection by his record. This is the doctrine. Referred elsewhere in scripture as justification, knowing that you are forgiven, not based on anything you have done, but on Jesus Christ alone suffering in your place. This is justification, and it's this, and by this, that God can look at you and say, forgiven. Because of Jesus Christ, my perfect son, whom I sent into the world to be the propitiation for your sins, you are forgiven a wonderful thing to be forgiven of all of our sins. The forgiveness of God is wrapped up in the display of his love. God initiated the love, and that's why it says not that we loved God, but that he loved us. The imagery in scripture is that we see this holy loving God, and we get a glimpse of him, and we cower in fear and run away. Nobody was clamoring to get there, God in Christ came to us. And he is the exact image of what we need in terms of seeing this God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, helped me by saying this. Scripture does not allow us to suppose that because God is love, that we may look to him to confer happiness on people who will not seek holiness. By saying that J.I. Packer knows what any student of the Bible knows, when you encounter God who is loving and who is love, yet who is holy, we need a transformation to take place and a transaction to forgive us of our sins, so that we can pursue this holy God, not based on our own record of accomplishments, but on Christ alone. And so you can say, like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2:20, "I live by faith in the Son of God." who loved me, emphasis mine, and gave himself for me. The Apostle Paul often wrote things like this and and said things like Jesus died for us. But here, he states this personally, and it's instructive for each of us. I live by faith in the Son of God, and you put your name there, who loved Joe and gave himself for Joe. Put your name in that me, This is a confidence that comes because God has revealed what he does about human sin. He punished his own son instead. The peak of all of this is that Jesus is our only hope and sacrifice so that we can learn, like it says down in verse 14, we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. God's love is so displayed in Jesus and his arrival that it's our only hope to know this love of God. But the love of God is revealed even more in another way, which I dare say in real time is the greatest expression that we have perhaps experienced this side of heaven. And that's revealed, his love is revealed by his people. This is an amazing section. Verses 11 and 12 doesn't give us an explicit command, but it tells us how we ought to be thinking at this point if we have heard all of this about the love of God. Verse 11 says, beloved, if God so loved us sacrificially, right? Every single one of these mentions of the word love is that Greek word agape. And I don't want to be assuming here that everybody knows what that means. You can find that on, you know, wooden signs down at the local Christian bookstore, agape, right? What it means is sacrificial, self-giving love. And this is our God, and this is what he is. And it says, if God so loved us in that way, we ought to love one another. And it says this, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us." I wondered, why does John bring up here, no one has ever seen God? Sometimes John does this, he seems to be delivering a right hook and then all of a sudden he comes with a left jab. You're like, "Whoa, well, where's that coming from? When You realize, no, this is, this is the assault of truth and the power of God's word to reveal the love of God. And here's what he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Those statements all go together. Let me show you one in John, the gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, and compare it to 1 John 4. In the gospel of John, John begins his writing by stating, the only other time I found that no one has ever seen God, at least in John's writing. And this is what he says in John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So in that verse, it's the same as in 1 John 4. No one has ever seen God. But in John 1.18, who is it that reveals the invisible God? It's Jesus Christ. And this is true in John 14. As Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus told them he was going away and would prepare a place for them in his father's home. And this is imagery that resonates with this very passage. And one of the, the apostles then said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus replied to him and to them all, have you been with me so long that you don't know the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Amazing reality here. Some of you have a fuzzy view of what a good father should be. And if the character of God and the essence of God, the Father, still doesn't resonate with you, the reason Jesus came was to show you what God was like. Jesus is the express image of God, of his very essence. And if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That doesn't mean Jesus is your heavenly Father, but it means Jesus came to reveal the heavenly Father so that we would know him and relate to him through Jesus in perfect fellowship by the power of God's spirit. But look what it says in 1 John 4. Same expression. No one has ever seen God, but this time it's different. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Who is it that's revealing the invisible God this time? The people of God. This is an amazing, overwhelming reality. Think about our track record for a minute. How often do we love one another so well that people look at us and say, that's God at work. But I'll put it another way. That's often been the reality here at West Park in my own experience. As I've thought about the love of God, one of the main ways I've experienced the love of God wherever I've been at any point in my Christian life is in the local church with people that I see on a regular basis who love me well for reasons that I can't explain. You know, this morning I came to work, and it is my birthday. I don't officially turn 40 until about 11.57 tonight, so I'm milking as much as I can out of my 30s even now. But I got to work, and I opened up my computer, and there in my computer was a birthday card from my wife. It was a surprise. And I opened it up, and I looked at what she said in the card. It was very sweet. very, just genuinely Lauren, and, and, and that's my beloved, that's who I know, encouraging me, honoring me with her words, um, delighting that she gets to spend another birthday with me. What if I said, oh, you know what, if you really knew what's going on, and if you really knew the real me, you wouldn't be saying these things, so uh, let's not, maybe, just don't be that superfluous with your love. <laughs> no, that would be ridiculous. You know, I've been tempted at times by the display of her love and the display of love in many different ways from the people around this church to have this understanding, I'm not worthy of that. Well, of course you're not. And in my marriage, I'm not worthy of the love of an amazing wife. Where are you, Lauren? I can't even see you. Hi. (laughs) I'm not worthy of that. But here's where it gets really good. The love of God is revealed through the love of God's people for you so that you can get a glimpse of the kind of love that he gives. You're not worthy of it, but you get to step back and enjoy it anyway. The love of our God is gracious and kind, and it overflows to the very people that God has put around you. And if you are not moved by the displays of love of the people of God around you, there's something wrong with you. You should be softened humbled, your curmudgeonliness worn off (laughs) by the love of God's people. And I will say this, I can't emphasize enough that the place where people ought to experience the love of God and have flesh put on it so that the invisible God is made more visible and the power of Jesus Christ is seen is here in this local church. No one should leave here and say, well, I guess that God doesn't love me because they ought to have encountered the love of God in every person here that they came in contact with. And that will require us to be on the lookout for people who are around us that we may not feel comfortable to greet, who are not quite like us, who don't seem to have the same things that they're passionate about. The things that we ought to be passionate about is Jesus Christ. And the fact that of all the unworthy things that should ever happen in life, I am loved by God and I'm gonna love you too. This is the transformative power of the love of God. I do want to talk in in brief about verse 13 to 16. Uh, More will be said about the Spirit of God in the coming weeks, and I can't get into all of what even this text says right now. This is where I have to be picky and choosy. Verse 13 down to verse 16 has this repeated phrase, And it's this reflective language. It's seen most down in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That is a statement of absolute certainty. And it's what I based this entire message title off of, assurance of God's love. Because you can say like John did, I have come to know and to be certain of the love that God has for me. But this is what he says after that. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's very repetitive. It's got a cadence to it. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And you can say that as a chant, and you can remember what it's like. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. This love that God sends to us is very personal, it's very localized in each of your hearts, and it's so intimate that God himself dwells with you and in you and communicates that love to you. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has been given to the people of God to communicate the love of God. John says in verse 14, which may not seem to go with this, but it certainly does. The ministry of the Spirit is through the apostles. That's why it says, and we. John says, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit is behind that message. That has authority. Love is not absence of authority. The voice of authority speaks, and it's the most loving thing you can ever hear, that God says... There's only one way to heaven, it's through my Son. And so we, verse 15, by the power of the Spirit, confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And when that transpires, when that happens, God abides in that individual, and He in God. So my friends, this is the reality of the Holy Spirit's work. It is to point you to Jesus again and again, and to affirm to you the power and the strength of the love of Jesus so that we could pray like the Apostle Paul did. Oh, we will pray that we could comprehend the depths and the height and the length and the width of the love of God in Christ with all the saints. Oh, that we could grasp something of that love. It would transform everything. Oh, to be swept up in that love. It's why it's said of the Holy Spirit, why Paul says in Romans 5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who who has been given to us. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to communicate to you the love of God for you, individually, through Christ and his work. God says through these revelations, We are not to be slaves to fear, but we are to stake everything that we hope for on the certainties of God's love, because it's the reality of what it means to be loved by God. When God pours his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to you, you have a sense, I am forgiven. It's like the song we sang this morning, I am who you say I am. That's a declaration of faith, not feeling. You may have come here this morning thinking, I don't feel very loved. And you may not. I don't feel very forgiven. And you may not. But it doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what God says. And will you stake your faith on what God says? Not on what you feel. Not on what you fear? The Holy Spirit communicates to us the lavish love of God. And that's what 1 John 3 says, oh, if you read that again, I want to mess it up, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. John had no problem being certain, despite the thundery son of thunder that he was that often wanted to call down the fire of heaven on other people who didn't get it fast enough. That impatience and that anger confronted by love, he became the apostle of love. Love, if you took my homework assignment from last week, is mentioned in John, 1 John 4, 7-21, to 21, in various forms, 28 times. If you found more, come and see me. If you didn't find that many, I'll tell you where they are. I'm certain that he mentions love and that he believes it and affirms it, and we must too. Well, my friends, we need to talk about the effect of God's love. When I talk about the effect and and what it should take place in our hearts, note in verse 17, it says this, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. The by this is talking about both what comes before and what's coming after. There's two things happening when God initiates the love. One, he certainly reveals it to the hearts of each of his children and they come to know for certain that God loves. And the other thing that's happening is they start to love God back. And John says, by this, this abiding, you and God and God in you, and you abiding in love. By this, you will have confidence. And God will, through that process, perfect your love. What does that mean? But that he is going to take your love and bring it to the point of maturity that relationships and, and really, the test of love requires. Imagine a couple up here getting married and the husband-to-be says to his wife-to-be, I will honor you and support you. I will love you for better or for worse in sickness and in health um, until we both die. I forget the vows exactly, all right? Not very romantic. I'm sorry. <laughs> but what would happen if afterwards they didn't live in the same house? They actually lived a couple states apart. They occasionally saw each other on Christmas or Easter, but that was about it. And by and large, if you visited them, they would say, well, yeah, I love my wife. And she would say, I love my husband. Well, there's no proof of it. Love isn't love until it's been tested. You know, and this is true when you go back to the story of Abraham, who was tested to give his son, his only son, Isaac, the one that he loved, to God and God is no different in how he operates with his children. He may not require such a heavy sacrifice of each of us, but he will require us to grow and to stretch in our understanding of his love and of our loving of others. Here are some of the effects, and this is what God wants you to grow in, confidence in your position as God's child. This is a response to God that honors God. It pleases him when his children despite what they feel or despite what they fear, stake their claim on what God says about them, and they believe and they hold on to God. That's confidence. That pleases God, and that's loving to God. That's why it says in the text, verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. One of the things that you can do to respond to God this morning is to think about yourself and to put yourself in the judgment, by the judgment seat, in front of the judgment seat of God. Someday, every single one of us will stand before God and have to give an account of our lives. When you stand there someday, what account will you give? When you see that holy God, what will be your hope as you stand there. It's right to be a bit fearful when we think about that holy God. And we read that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews tells us that. But what we read here is that there's a confidence of the child of God. And the confidence is this, as he is, so also are we in this world. The he is Jesus. And the effect of confidence in the life of a child of God is such that he will take this confidence that Jesus alone rightly has. It's the confidence of Jesus before the Father, having completed all of his work and now receiving the blessing of eternity for a job well done, that that is our record even now in this world, that the children of God can enjoy everything that the Son of God himself enjoys, even the record. And the perfect love that the Son has experienced for all eternity. Do you deserve that? No. And I don't either. But here's the kind of imagery it is. You know, in my house, the the way it's designed, if you sit in the living room, you've got one opening here to the dining room, and you've got another opening here to the kitchen and the mudroom area to go out to the garage. So, what that, in a sense, creates is a perfect track for our children and dog to run around. (laughs) That happens more often than not. Sometimes that really annoys me, and I just kind of uh, But when I finally get enough sense in my head, and when I'm aware of the precious times that are a part of our family's life, I get up and I run around too. I've seen such joy in my kids' faces. When that happens, they run and run and run, and then they launch themselves onto the couch. Sometimes they'll launch themselves onto my wife's lap or my lap, and that's really the way it is and the way it should be. But in the father's house, can you imagine the father who has gone to such lavish lengths to show his love in Christ would ever say to his children who come to him, in whatever state they come, "Uh, you need to have a probate, time uh, something. There's a sense in which we live as if God is going to lower the stick whenever we cross the line one too many times. and This is why the second statement is there, no guilt in life, no fear in death. Verse 18 says that, that it's true that there is no fear in love. Now this fear is a slavery fear. It's a fear that, uh, I just don't belong. If I have to work to, to make my way, if I have to earn my keep through my performance, I'm going to have to work really hard. But it's a fear because you know you can't do it. This is what this fear refers to. It's not the fear when you have cancer and you read a statement like Philippians one twenty one that says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's not the fear that looks at death and says... That's kind of scary, right? That fear, that's apparent. And God walks through all kinds of fear with his children to bless everything that they go through. But this fear is talking about a slavery fear, where your sense is that because you don't deserve it, you never can. This is something that tends us to think that we are going to be punished, And while God disciplines the children that he loves, he does not punish them to cast them out of his house. And praise God for the discipline and the love so that, in a sense, I can jump up in the the lap of my heavenly father. I can see the grace and the love of the family of God and the actions and the words of Jesus. And by the Spirit, I can know that I belong And so, as Paul told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And we can take those thoughts of slavery, that we don't belong, and we can push them out by the power of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in England in the mid-20th century. He's passed away in, in, in heaven now. This is what he wrote in one of his books. He said, "There are those who say that it is presumptuous for people in this life and world who know darkness of their own heart and who, who know something of the justice and holiness of God, to be free from that fear. That means they know that God is holy, and so they say it's presumptuous to say that you're free from that fear. In the words of Milton, they scorn delights and live laborious days, afraid to say that they have the joy of the Lord or the assurance of salvation. And friends, that's blasphemy to say these things. Now, if you don't know God, you still ought to be very afraid of the holiness and the wrath of God. But run to Jesus. But if you have run to Jesus, delight to live under the smile of God. See what Father's smiles are thine. See what spirit dwells within you. See how Jesus died to win you. We stake our confidence on the truths of what God has revealed, and we likewise, over time, begin to get a sense of how God is changing us. The the people of God can look at their lives over a long track record and see, in varying degrees of growth and success, I am changing to be more like Jesus. That person who was unlovable, somehow I loved them. To read God's word became a delight. To have a sense of God's presence and what he was doing in my life, even if it was painful, I knew he was there. And Jesus is certain he's a bedrock of confidence and hope, and I believe in him. He's my savior and Lord. The track record of God's people, God wants you to experience those things, to note them. That's not bragging. That gives praise back to God, for like our text says towards the end, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Any work of love in your life, anything that's come out of you, praise God for it, my friends, and take your stand on the promises of God, and don't go back into a slavery that leads to more fear and slavery, but reject those things and place your faith on Christ if you're on your deathbed this week and you have turned to Christ, but you're reminded of a sin that came up and that is somehow plaguing you, even on your deathbed, run to Jesus and find your solace and rest in him alone. He is your power and he is your love and he is your sound mind for all the love yet to come as we love God and peace.